This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. This week, Wellesley College professor Brenna Greer teaches a class debunking some of the myths about Rosa Parks and the 1955 and 56 Montgomery bus boycott. So our focus today then is going to be the Montgomery bus boycott, like I said, and that's what you read all of your sources for except the Payne article that gave you a, a larger a larger focus. And to do that, we're going to go back to our discussion of origin points, right? Our favorite slide, which you're going to be so sick of, right? Representing the, um, the narrative arc of the popular story of the civil rights movement. And we're going back to our topic of origin points, again, with the, with the objective of troubling it. One, putting them, putting those image or putting those events in context, but also troubling the idea of them as origin points. And last week we discussed Brown versus Board of Education. We discussed, discussed the decision, response, the impact, but also the legacy. And I want to talk more about the legacy as we go forward, but we're not going to do that today. Um, and then on Tuesday, we spent time talking about the Emmett Till case, right? And um, which the lynching of Emmett Till in August of 1955. And we used a mix of secondary and primary sources to consider how ideologies of race, gender, and justice um, impacted that case and impacted the lived experience of people in that case. And I just wanted to take a moment to pull out and say that this week, what happened this week that is of significance in relationship to the Till case? Anybody paying attention? Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Morgan. Oh, they passed anti-lynching legislation. Yeah, right? They passed the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act. Right? That designates lynching as a hate crime under federal law. And this legislation is coming 65 years after Till's lynching and 120 years after after Congress first considered anti-lynching legislation. So that's 120 years of Congress failing to, choosing not to, pass such legislation. In 2005, Congress did see fit to apologize, apologize to the descendants of um, lynching victims. But it took another 15 years for both the Senate and the House to um, pass this legislation, and then it'll go to the White House um, for signing by President Trump. So you can imagine that there are a lot of responses going on to this, and the, mo- and the, the prominent one is, is why now? And people are asking, is this commemorative? Is this a cause for celebration? Or is this a cause for concern? Is this preemptive? What is the context now that is making this bill, you know, um, feasible within Congress when it's been 120 years, that hasn't been the case. So, and I just want to take a moment to point out Ida B. Wells because a lot of people in talking about this anti-lynching legislation are asking, you know, what about Wells? Ida B. Wells was an activist and a journalist in the late 19th century who publicly and doggedly and consistently was condemning and publicizing lynching, um, most notably through her publication, A Red Record. And she did this at great personal cost. Um, her printing, um, printing outfit was burned down. She was run out of town. So you can understand why w- some people might say, certainly not that Till shouldn't be attached, but where's the recognition of Ida B. Wells? And we'll come back to Wells actually in talking about Montgomery. 
So going back to the origin points here, I just wanted to point that out. Today, we'll focus on the Montgomery bus boycott, and I want to put that in the timeline that we were talking about or that I showed you last time. So we have the Brown versus Board of Education decision in, in May of 1954, immediately after White Citizen Council's form. And then we have Brown versus Board of Education two the following year in May of 1955, and then the Emmett Till lynching in August of 1955. And I don't think a lot of people realize how close to the Till lynching that the Montgomery bus boycott was. You have Rosa Parks being arrested on December 1st of 1955. That was a Thursday. And then the following Monday on December 5th, the Montgomery bus boycott begins. All right, so that's just a little bit of context for you um, to put it in uh, a visual form. And so we're going to use the readings today to consider, um, to consider the, bu the bus boycott. And these readings gave you a lot of information about events and circumstances leading up to, but not so much information necessarily about the boycott. So we'll also talk about that, and we can continue that conversation in our next, um, in our next, uh, uh, next lecture as well, and certainly if people have questions. So I want to focus on Montgomery because... More than any of the other origin events that we've talked about, Montgomery is most often cited as the beginning of the civil rights movement within the popular narrative. And that, um, I find the popular narrative of the boycott itself within this larger narrative to be um, somewhat problematic. And I want to dig into that myth or that story of the Montgomery bus boycott and doing that, I think an a effective way of doing that is looking to a central figure in that myth, Rosa Parks, right? I want to look at what I call the mythic Rosa Parks. And so I want to make a real distinction between Rosa Parks as a person, as a woman, and then Rosa Parks as an icon, right? And we're going to be talking about both, but those are two separate things. And so I, I want to ask you if... You can give me, some of you may have a lot more information about Rosa Parks. We have a lot more information available to us now. But if you can just give me a sense of the popular narrative, the enduring narrative or idea of Rosa Parks, as you likely learned when you were in elementary school or typically celebrated through Black History Month. Anybody want to? Go out there. Um, I think what I learned about her in elementary school was definitely she refused to give up her seat. And she was just like an ordinary woman mm -hmm. coming from work. Mm -hmm. And it was just a, like a manifestation of the common attitudes at the time and the mm -hmm. common, you know, she was just an ordinary woman. And mm -hmm. a, like a martyr, honestly. Like mm -hmm. that's how it was portrayed. Yeah, I mean, she definitely became a martyr in that sense. Anyone else? Yeah. Um, I guess the way that I learned about it was that like she was the catalyst for this like movement that um, as if she was the only woman or person that had been arrested for not giving up their seat mm -hmm. um, as if like it was a single incident that happened mm -hmm. and it was her mm -hmm. um, yeah yeah I mean it's, it's as much as the Montgomery bus boycott is seen as the beginning of the civil rights movement 
she's seen as the beginning of the bus boycott, right? And so that's where that title, Mother of the Civil Rights Movement, comes from, right? Um, on our best day, how many of us can hope for such a title? Um, but yeah, going off of both those points, she's typically, um, or she was at least, typically described as this elderly woman. She was 42. I need that not to be elderly, all right? <laughs> She was not elderly. She's, she's described as an elderly seamstress. Uh, many news accounts didn't even give her name. Elderly seamstress with tired feet, right? Tired feet who spontaneously took a stand by sitting down and then single-handedly sparked the modern black freedom movement, right? And I don't want to deny her any of her importance. And this is actually the Rosa Parks that, with the best of intentions, my mother introduced me to when I was very young. And I held on to that picture all the way through college, all the way through my history classes in college, well into my graduate studies. And it was only when I started doing my own research as a master's student that that image started to crumble. And not just crumble, become really frustrating to me, right? Because I think that this ideal of Parks really frustrates or negates her actual history and particularly her activist history. Right? And in recent years, we've had historians who are um, really working or have really worked to break down kind of that idea, to give us a more complicated picture. And I want to point to these two books in particular. Um, anybody read any of them? All right. This could be new for you. All right. So At the Dark End of the Street by Daniel McGuire and The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks already tells you that's going to be a corrective narrative in that sense, right? So if you have more information or you have a desire to know more about Rosa Parks as a woman, as an activist, these are great sources. And I'm actually drawing on them some to, to do that with you today, right? So um, I want to use this. Uh, use these books or use these, the information that I have from books in my own research to kind of deconstruct that myth. And I, I am going to ask you if you know more about Rosa Parks or if what you're holding on to, you could just raise your hands, you don't even have to answer, if what you're holding on or for how many people you're holding on to this kind of typical iconic idea that gets celebrated in Black History Month. How many, for how many of you is that the image that you're most familiar with? Okay. <laughs> All right. That's really, that's really um, not surprising because I think that image circulates in you know, museums, newspapers, definitely in elementary school, children's books and all of those. So it's not surprising to me, but it is troubling to me. It is very troubling. And what I want to point out is how, um, how simple and inaccurate that um, representation is. So I'll just start at the beginning. Beginning in the 1930s, Rosa Parks was campaigning on behalf of the Scottsboro Boys with her husband, right? And Melody brought up the Scottsboro Boys um, in our last class in terms of these nine African-American men who were accused of raping two, black or two white women on a train. And then it was this long, um, drawn-out case in which um, many of them spent years and years and years in prison. So Rosa Parks was actively campaigning on their behalf, and which is notable because also, as Melody brought out, these were um, African-Americans who were defended by the Communist Party, right? So that right there, that's a subversive kind of activity. activity. Don't worry about writing these down. I will send this to you immediately after. Listen to the story, right? Just listen to the story, particularly if this is the first time you've actually 
had any encounter to this woman, all right? I promise you, all right? So she sat as the lookout on the steps to her own home while there were meetings, NAACP meetings held in her house where she discusses seeing just, she'd never seen so many guns on her kitchen table. She'd never seen so many guns until, she, until those meetings were held in her house. She joined the NAACP in 1943, either the second or the third woman in Montgomery to do that. So I should say the, the Montgomery chapter of the NAACP. And she became the secretary almost immediately because nobody else wanted to do it, right? So that in and of itself as a woman was unusual in Montgomery at that time, less and less unusual. Her, the woman who, the other, one of the other women of the two or three was her mother, right? So you could see that there's some, some modeling going on there. This is key. In her role as the secretary of the NAACP in the 1940s in Montgomery, Alabama, or in Alabama, she traveled around the state by herself to gather evidence or proof um, or testimony from blacks who had witnessed or experienced white-on-black violence. Think about that, right? How many of you have seen Rosa Parks, a picture of her? She's, she's not a formidable woman, right? She's a black woman traveling by herself through the Jim Crow South to get material that many what, um, whites or authority figures would have been upset about, right? This is a dangerous thing that she is doing, quite in contrast to the image we have of her. She beginning um, in the 1940s, she organized on the behalf of sexually abused black women, sexually assaulted, abused black women, very openly, very openly. That's what um, Theo Harris's book is really about. Actually, both of them touch on that, but Theo Harris really talks about or, or traces that history of Parks advocating on behalf of sexually abused black women. Um, black women abused largely by white men and largely in the auspices of white supremacy. She made repeated attempts to register to vote in the 1940s, right? Repeated events, and as we'll talk about, and I'm sure you know to some extent, this too could be a very dangerous act at this point in time. She protested segregation on the buses before 1955. In fact, she was kicked off a bus by the same bus driver almost a decade earlier for resisting the activities of that bus driver, or the... the um, the instructions of that bus driver. <clears throat> she spoke, she was a featured speaker at the NAACP State Convention in 1948. I don't think that's an image that we generally have of Rosa Parks. In fact, when I was doing my research, I found an audio clip of her on a, um, on a New York uh, radio interview. And I remember hearing her voice for the first time and, and being like, oh, of course, she's Southern. It just surprised me. It just surprised me because I'd never heard her. Like, I'd never heard her, right? But here she is speaking before a convention crowd in 1948. So very public, very public. She trained at the Highlander Folk School in Tennessee. This is before her arrest. She did a two-week um, training in desegregation at the Highlander Folk School, um, which was tagged as communist. It wasn't a communist uh, school. It was a, a tra uh, leadership training institution. Um, and it was, it was precisely because of Brown versus Board of Education that these workshops were being held, right? It was to help learn how to facilitate that process, hopefully um, peacefully. She never fully embraced nonviolence. And she's on the record about that. 
She's on the record about not knowing if threatened with violence or messed with in a particular way if she could turn the other cheek. She certainly supported some of the nonviolent activities of the civil rights movement as we think about it, but she never fully embraced nonviolence. So, for how many of you, raise of hands, is that surprising? Right? That's, again, troubling <laughs> to me, right? Um, but not at all surprising. So my question then, and I am going to allow for a couple of questions here, or a couple of answers, why do you think, there's no right answer, right? Because you are, you're the ones who know. Why do you think there's such an investment or that that mythic Parks, as I'm calling her, has taken, has, has survived so long? Well after her death, she died in 2005, why do you think that has such currency, that idea? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, I think, like, when I learned about this, I think I was, like, in elementary school, so I was, like, eight, nine, ten years old. Mm -hmm. And, like, I think that it's a lot easier for her to be, like, a one-dimensional character mm -hmm. in the story that we tell children mm -hmm. in, like, um, you know, when we're first learning about this history mm -hmm. than it is for her to be, like, a complex human being that had, like, more... Um, to offer the story than just like sitting on a bus. Yeah, yeah. Morgan? I think it's also like thinking about how a lot of us, again, learn about this in elementary school, very strategic on like public education and just like educators' role in general to tell stu like children and to like push this narrative that black people get what they want if they are nonviolent and they're pacified. Mm -hmm. Like there are so many world events historic events that we learn about um, that are achieved through violent means mm -hmm. in like European countries and just by white people generally, like revolutionary-wise. Um, and then like this obviously is like a catalyst for, or has been remembered as a catalyst for like this larger movement. And we're being told that this person like, you know, is this nonviolent, peaceful, old, tired woman when that's like not the case. And I think that's very like strategic. Mm -hmm. It's at least very politically significant, if not, you know, if not, intended. Others? Anyone else want to speak to that? Yeah. <laughs> Look at you all. <laughs> yeah, I also think like this narrative presents her as like a political agent, which mm -hmm. is something that like even broader like for women um, mm -hmm. of all races, like that's something that's not really like mentioned, mm -hmm. that she's someone who um, was very strategic in what she did and like in, even in terms of like what um, organizations she associated with. I right. think it just shows her agency mm -hmm. in a way that like, we are reluctant to even talk about when, regarding women. Yeah, and remember I told you to, to draw Mamie Till Bradley forward in terms of thinking about Parks and the actions that she would take in the moment, right? That's, that's just months beforehand. It's just months beforehand. So we also have to think about how Parks might have been you know, presenting herself. And we're going to talk more about that at a different time. But I, I agree with all of you to an extent. I mean, the Montgomery bus boycott, I think, is one of our greatest national fairy tales, right? It's just a really nice story of, in its popular form, of good versus evil, David and Goliath, right? And that, you know, good Americans bear out, right? There's those aberrant racist Southerners, right? But good Americans bear out in that sense. And I think when you have a fairy tale, you have very simple you know, good versus bad, and Rosa Parks is the hero 
you know, along with Martin Luther King. They're the hero of this fairy tale. It's always interesting to me, though, how many of you learned about Rosa Parks for the first time in elementary school? Okay. How many of you learned anything else about her after? Okay. <laughs> it's always interesting to me, because I think you're right, Maggie, in the sense that people think that children need simple characters, right? And to me, the sad thing is that's when I think, you know, minds, attitudes are very flexible and can take in complex information. You know, I often use the example of when I was in graduate school, this uh, children's book came out about Martin Luther King. Um, and my uh, professor brought it in and he, he read it to us. And it said, on April 4th, 1968, Martin Luther King died which is not inaccurate, right? But <laughs> he was assassinated, right? And that showed like a, a, a hesitancy to deal in that material. Then I point people to like Grimm's fairy tales and everything, which are horrifying and scary, right? But there's this idea that we, you need, we need these sanitized, these sanitized stories, I think, for children. And I think it's, that would be fine, but that would be okay if there was then any other point where you were actually learning, you know, building on that story. And my experience is, and I'm sure this is different in different regions and different schools and stuff, but my experience is that, you know, most people don't then have more education on the civil rights movement and or Rose Parks. Yes, sorry, Eva. <laughs> um, so I learned about Rosa Parks when I was, like, young and, mm -hmm. like, preschool probably, and then mm -hmm. also, again, in elementary school. Mm -hmm. And then... Later, I think in middle school or high school, I learned about how she wasn't the first person to not yeah. give up her seat. And so I think that's something that's really interesting. And one of the articles, the origins of Montgomery um, bus boycott, mm -hmm. said that Rosa, like they quoted, Rosa Parks had the caliber of character we needed to get the city to rally behind us. Yeah. So I thought that was an, an interesting, like for me, that was kind of a moment because I was always curious, like why Rosa Parks? Right. Like, this happened before Rosa Parks, right, right. which like the article laid out. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I thought it was interesting that we focus so specifically on her and then don't talk about the backstory behind her when we're learning about her. Yeah. Let, and let me speak to that. Let, let's, let's go through that, right? Because one of the reasons that I focus on this symbolic um, mythic Rosa Parks or start there is because I think she's propping up this bigger myth of the Montgomery myth. And then I would argue that 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 is also obscuring um, information about the Montgomery movement and the Montgomery bus boycott that would be really helpful to us now, right? Information about organizing, information about how they funded things, information about what formed their theories or their strategies, right? So I want to speak to that because that's a huge question. Why, why, why um, do we not have that other information? So the Montgomery myth, here are some aspects of it. Don't worry about writing down. I will send it to you. Right, that Rosa Parks is this accidental activist. She just, she's had enough. She's tired. She's going home. She's just like, I'm not taking it anymore. Um, that she's the first one who took that stand. That the boycott in, is unprecedented, right? And that the boycott is spontaneous. That's part of what allows for us to have that container idea of the civil rights movement, right? Like suddenly there was organizing on this issue of civil rights. Martin Luther King Jr., it should say, organized the boycott. The masses followed King the masses walked, which they did. Boycott ended, to segre it, um, ended segregated buses and that the boycott was short. And I just want to kind of tick through those, right, and just um, speak to those. And the first one being this idea that Parks was the first, that she was the first woman, black woman, to resist 
um, segregated public transportation. That's not even true. I mean, there are examples from the previous century, one of them being Ida B. Wells, who protested on the railroad and won. She sued and won. Um, Sojourner Truth um, uh, protested on DC streetcars. And then Homer Plessy, black man, but that's where Plessy versus Ferguson, separate but equal, comes from in 1896, right? So we have examples of African Americans boycotting segregated public transportation before. Um, and in other locations, Birmingham, Alabama, we have two examples. Um, I only wrote one down here, but Pauline Carth in 1943, she was a teenager, and when she, um, what, a bus driver treated her poorly, she spit on him, she cursed him, and then she spent 30 days in jail as a teenager, right? And then there's an incident of another woman that's nameless in the record who got into a shoving match with um, a white man on the bus. She cursed him while she was riding the bus, and then when she got off the bus, she was arrested and sentenced to, um, or spent time in jail. But in Montgomery, to the points that several of you have made, there's several, you know, documented um, uh, incidences of women doing exactly what Parks did, and some of them did it more than once. Um, first one here being Epsi Worthy, who in 1943, she argued with the driver, she got off the bus, the driver followed her, spit on her, beat her, and according to um, eyewitness testimony, she gave as much as she got. I don't know what happened to her, but I'm thinking she probably spent some time in jail. Um, Henrietta Brinson in 1953, she sat in, a, in front of a white couple on a bus. She was um, targeted by the bus driver, but she avoided jail in that sense because the white couple agreed to move, right? And so what you need to understand about segregated buses, generally speaking, there are 10 seats in the front, 10 seats in the back, or 16 and 16 seats, I'm sorry, whites, blacks, and then this no man's land. But depending on who was on the bus, the seats went to the white patrons, right? And the, and the African-Americans had to move whenever instructed to. And what's important here is understanding that bus drivers had police powers. Right? They had police powers, right? So that makes resisting doubly risky, right? They could do what a police officer could do in those circumstances, including, you know, violence. Um, two other examples, Rosa Parks, as I said, she resisted. A decade before, she resisted, right? And then one of the worst cases is Viola White, who in 1943 refused to give up her seat. The driver tried to remove her. She resisted. She was beaten. She was arrested, and she was jailed. She was found guilty. She appealed the case. And as reprisal, white police officers kidnapped her 16-year-old daughter and raped her in a cemetery, right? That was for her resisting resisting, right? And so it tells you the significance of crossing that line, of crossing that line. Um, and then we also have, as uh, the Garrow article pointed out, in the same year, in 1955, you have Claudette Colvin, who's a 15-year-old teenager who refuses to give up the, her seat on the bus. And the NAACP and everyone rallies around her in March of 1955 until she winds up pregnant. And then they back off. In um, April of that year, so a month later, Ariella, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, Browder um, has an incident on a bus where she is arrested um, for resisting to give up her seat. Remember that name. And then in October, Mary Louise Smith, who's an 18-year-old African-American girl who refuses to give up her seat, also 
before Rosa Parks. We don't know about her because her father came down and paid her fine and she was out before the NAACP or anything ever knew about it. But both Claudette Colvin and Mary Louise Smith have said things to the effect of, we weren't in the inner circle. We were too dark. We were too poor. Um, The Smith family were Catholics, which also put them outside the bounds of the circle in that sense. So we have three, at least three women who've done the same thing in the same year as Rosa Parks, right? So we need to think about, we need to just scratch off that Rosa Parks was the first, right? Let's just take that off. Yes? Uh, when you say that they're too dark, too poor, are you mm-hmm. saying like they couldn't be the like figure behind the boycott? Right. Behind the movement? Right. That's what Colvin and Louise Smith believed, and there's evidence that supports them in that. Because you have Parks and Edie Nixon, who you read about, both saying, we can't use her. Right? The media will tear us up, particularly with Colvin. Melody? Yeah, I mean, I, I can't help but see it as them not really seeing Rosa Parks as a threat, more right. so innocent. Right. I mean, I think if she was wearing like a Black Panther uniform <laughs> and a beret, that would be a completely different story. And of course, her um, skin complexion, I think, has um, something to do with it, because mm-hmm. she doesn't look like the tr- possibly the traditional, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't think she was seen as much of a threat, just super innocent mm-hmm. in that case, so... Yeah, I mean, and there's definitely evidence. And again, Parks says this herself, right? I mean, when she is arrested, Edie Nixon is like, hallelujah, right? He's like, this is the one. She's the one, right? And they all gather at her house to convince her of that. And who's against it? Her husband. Because he's not an idiot. He knows how dangerous that is. Yeah. In a way, do you think that um, Robinson and Nixon kind of forged that narrative or made her kind of the figure mm-hmm. of the civil rights movement that's been propagated since then? That's a great question. I don't think Robinson did. I think Parks did. And I think Nixon did. Um, Robinson was angry. <laughs> she was really angry when they backed off of Colvin. Right? And Colvin was a student, was a, was a young girl that Parks had worked with because Parks was in charge of the NAACP youth activities. Right? So they had a relationship in that sense. So when they backed off of Colvin, she was really upset because as the Garrow article tells you, they're waiting. You know, Robinson has been, you know, fighting this fight for a decade, right? And when the, the, when the decision, the Brown decision comes out and she writes, what, four days later, she writes to the mayor, like, you know, just reminding you, African-Americans make up 75% of the riders. And if we were to actually boycott that would be really bad for the bus company, right? I mean, that's a, a threat, right, to the, the degree to which she could do it. So I don't think that you, I don't think we can tag that on Robinson so much, but I think we can take it on gender politics of the time and certainly then also um, politics of color because it's not incidental that she's a light-skinned woman and she's chosen. All of these things lead or allow for this idea of middle-class respectability, they all lead for or allow for idea of middle class respectability, despite the fact that Rosa Parks is absolutely of the working class, you know, and arguably of the working poor. She doesn't have that veneer, right? And so that's part of it. And she doesn't. She hasn't. She does not have a demeanor that is radical. She has a radical activist past, but she doesn't have a demeanor that is radical. So there's definitely image politics going on here. And we can decide whether or not we fault them for that or that they're looking at the reality of their situation. And we've talked in here about the trap of getting into an image politics game, right? And so 
one of the things we could consider is what are the effects of Rosa Parks having, having been the symbol, right? Because I think that goes back to Morgan's point of like, who is worthy of justice, right? And we talked about that with Mamie Till Bradley as well. Another thing that I want you to um, just keep in mind is that, you know, the question often comes up, why women? Why was it primarily women? And it was primarily women who were doing this. And all you need to know is Emmett Till, right? That's, I mean, that, I mean, there's a bigger history to that. To do the same type of resistance, you're seeing these women get beaten, right? To do the same type of resistance as an African-American man would have been even riskier, right? Even riskier. Also, African-American men weren't riding the buses as much. If there was a car in the family, and Af- the man would be taking it to his job. Um, it was w- women who were on the bus primarily. Also, because they were domestics, right? So they were on the bus in a greater, um, a greater capacity and often with white people. So those lines were kind of blurred because they might go do the grocery shopping with the children of their white employer and in that capacity they sat up front right they sat up front because that white baby wasn't going in the back right so there's a little bit more blurring of the line there and there's stories of african-american men often if a scuffle would start on a bus with an african-american woman they'd just get up and go out the back door and and suffered psychically for that right and were criticized for it they just get up and go out the back door because that's they understood how loaded that situation was so I also want to um, go to the next idea of this movement being unprecedented and spontaneous. And I want to try and um, trouble that or just, what, refute it. Right? There's examples um, within Alabama that refute that idea. There's a boycott in 1900, uh, 1900 of the trolleys, there aren't buses at this point in time, of the trolleys that lasts um, about two years. It's not as total as the Montgomery bus boycott is. The Montgomery bus boycott is 95% successful among African Americans. And, and, you know, Robinson is right. If 75% of your clientele is African American and then 95% of them stay off the buses, I mean, this crippled the bus company. They had to keep raising fares. They were very much on the, on, on the brink of financial ruin. And yet, time after time after time again, they refused to segregate the buses. That's important to, you know, to think about, to understand. So um, Montgomery Blacks held a boycott of the buses in 1941 around an Easter holiday event that happened. And they said that they were often like bussed out but then dropped far away and had to walk in the rain and everything. So they boycotted the buses. That was just a very short um, event. And then in Baton Rouge in 1953, there was a bus boycott that people in Montgomery very much took information from, right? And so that's when I say if you have a bus boycott narrative that's as simple as the one that we have, you can't do what people in Montgomery did in terms of the the Baton Rouge um, boycott where they took information and they learned from that to um, organize their own boycott. And then this idea of it being spontaneous, right? I think Garrow successfully right, deconstructs that idea. And if you look at when the Garrow article was written in 1985, so when, you, when I ask you how many of you have a more complex idea about Rosa Parks or the Montgomery bus boycott, and you're telling me in the year 2020 that it's still coming down this way, that's troubling because we've had this information now for a long time, 
you know, people, educators, we've had this information for a long time, right? And the Women's Political Council just blows that out of water, that idea that it was spontaneous, that they decided at the last moment. We know from Garrow that there was a plan in place, right? At least a loose plan, and that Robinson was just waiting, and that there had been many, many meetings between the, the WPC and city authorities to address this segregated seating with all these half measures, you know, like let us come in the front door, you know, at least, you know, have more black bus drivers. It doesn't even necessarily have to be that, you know, it's an integrated bus at this point in time, but it's no, no, no to all of those things, right? So a question that I have then is why didn't we know anything about the Women's Political Council until 1985? And then why don't you know anything about her, right? Why do you think we don't know anything about her or anything about the Women's Political Council this far? What is that? I can't do the math. Four, uh, 35 years later? What do you think accounts for that? Yeah, Catherine? Well, I think like part of it is the image of Martin Luther King Jr. as like the leader and the figurehead in all of this, that if you're kind of... In a sense, the Montgomery bus boycott is the origin point for him. Yeah. And so then, you know, if if the story is not like he was the one leading this, he was the one pushing this forward, mm-hmm. then that kind of makes things difficult for his narrative. Right, very much. And that's uh, in keeping with what was said before about Rosa Parks and that simple idea. Did I just see another hand there? Okay. Um, absolutely, right? And then the other thing that we have to understand is that African Americans on the ground are forging some of these ideas, right? Because it is politically expedient and safer to do so. And that's important to consider when you're thinking about a marginalized group or a marginalized group or an oppressed group trying to advance their politics within any particular historical moment. The African-American women that we're talking about, particularly women like Joanne Robinson, she's an activist, but she's still a middle-class black woman in the South which doesn't, I'm not just saying that because she was limited, she also has some gender ideologies about how she should behave as a middle-class woman in the South. Those are things that we also have to understand, that a lot of African-American women were putting the black men in front. But there's some other practical reasons for why they could do that. Because one, they think that's the image that should be out there. It makes their African-American men look stronger, right? Doesn't, um, what, emasculate them in a way... Um, and Robinson has a job. She has a job at a university, right? We learn, like, I love this. This is what I remember learning about Robinson and her distributing this leaflet in the middle of the night, getting her students to go to her university and mimographing this leaflet once Rosa Parks was arrested, saying, you know, this has happened to another person. We can't let this happen anymore. Boycott the buses on Monday. And she blankets the black sections of town with this to the point that white ministers in the church on Sunday are saying, you know, what's happening? Like, where is this coming from? Right. And the news reports on it and Sunday, the Montgomery Advertiser reports on it that Sunday afternoon. Like, where does this come from? Because she does it all in the middle of the night. Right. And she gets in trouble for it. She gets in trouble for it because she's used university property to do it. Right. But the the what the 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 do-it-yourself kind of nature of this, the hasty nature of this. She says that she already had it written to the large degree, and it was just waiting to be mimeographed. But there's a reason that she did it behind the scenes, right? And that at the time, nobody, she, you know, when people, when the Montgomery advertiser was like, who's responsible for this? The WPC wasn't like, 
hey, it's us, right? And in fact, that Friday, so Thursday night, they distribute these leaflets. That Friday, all the African-American male ministers get together and black leaders get together to talk about what to do. And that becomes more the site of, oh, the organizing or the, the thrust behind that. So then there's this idea which is, is um, connected of Martin Luther King organizing the boycott and that everybody was following his order. And that is partially because he was among that group of black male leaders. It's also because he was elected as the president on Monday afternoon, the day that the boycott starts. He's elected as the president of the Montgomery Improvement Association, which is the organization that was the official representative of the boycott. Why do you think he's elected? Does anybody know anything about King at this point in time? He's 26 years old. He's just moved to Montgomery. Yeah. I mean, like, as a minister, he kind of provides, or like a reverend, he provides, like, a level of respectability Mm -hmm. to the movement. Definitely, definitely. I mean, everybody agrees, you know, he's got a Ph.D., He's got a PhD in theology, right? He's articulate, which, you know, there's a coded word. He's articulate, he presents well, definitely. But he's also new. He kind of gets pushed out front because he doesn't have any of the relationships, the patronage relationships that some of the other black male leaders do. So he's not loyal to anyone yet. And if he messes up, they don't lose something. Right. So I'm not saying that he wasn't willing to do this or volunteered. But now think about I can't remember who said it. This is also the origin point for Martin Luther King. Right. So you Catherine. Yeah. Twenty six years old. No way did he know what this was going to mean for him. Right. How he's going to be launched onto the national stage, partly because nobody thought this boycott was going to last more than a day. The reason that it was that Monday was because that's when Rosa Parks was going to her trial, right? Nobody thought that this boycott was going to last more than a day. The other reason that people think that King was the leader is because at the mass meetings, like the one that was described in the reading, the the newspaper that you had, he's up front, right? And his audience is the masses, right? So it's very easy for outside media, which did come and, and film this, Um, film it, uh, report on it, to see him as the leader. And in fact, at this first mass meeting, that's what this picture of Rosa Parks, they they present her and Martin Luther King says, you know, this person that we're so lucky she's the face of our movement, this person who is not a disturbing factor in the community, which is like, she's totally a disturbing factor in the community. But, and she's standing there and she says, should I say something? And the ministers say, you've done enough. Have a seat, you've done enough. Right. And I always find that moment interesting because she does. She sits down and I'm I, I just wonder what the dynamics were there. If she sits down because she, you know, takes their gift of like, you don't have to do anymore. You've done enough. Let us, you know, let us just recognize you. Or if it's like, no, no, we got this. We got this. Right. Um, but she sits down. Right. And so it's very easy. Then you see the mantle shift from Parks to King that night. And you also see this is the official debut of the the parks we know. This not disturbing, middle class, respectable woman. From that point forward, the media campaign begins. And I told you that the Till trial was one of the first um, 
media dramas of the civil rights movement as we think about it. The Montgomery bus boycott was a sustained media event in many ways, a sustained staged drama, right? Staged drama. So part of the reason that people see him as the leader is because he's standing out front all of the time. But throughout the boycott, he and the women who have been arrested before, and he are saying, it's not me. I'm not the leader. Like, I'm like a spokesperson, but the masses are leading this movement. And Claudette Colvin says at the time, the leaders are just we ourselves. When she's asked about King as being the leader, she's like, mm. the leaders are just we ourselves. She's still a teenager at this point in time, right? And again, King is not refuting that. He considers himself lucky to be representing them, but because of the gender politics, but because of the media image and how it's being um, uh, what, uh, positioned, there's this idea that he's, he's the leader. But it's interesting to know that on Monday, that Monday, December 5th, everybody gathers at this mass meeting to assess how it's gone. The Montgomery Improvement Association has been formed, in the after, uh, been formed that afternoon. And the idea is that it's you know, a boycott, it's very successful, they show their strength, and all of the people in the audience are like, we're not going back. We're not going back on those buses, especially the maids and the cooks. We're not going back on those buses. We're not suffering that humiliation anymore. So this is no longer like a, you know, that's a show of force in this sense. This, but that the masses decide that night, you know, we're going to continue this. We're going to continue this. And then it becomes a matter of how you need to figure out how to run a bus boycott, right? How you have to run that. Because, right, it says here masses walked, and I, write, I put that as an, at, uh, um, an aspect of the Montgomery myth. Absolutely. African-Americans in Alabama were walking during the bus boycott, right? During all sorts of weather for miles and miles. There's testimony of people talking about how they have to walk miles into work, miles out of work in that sense. And I told you, it's 95% effective. You see pictures of the buses with like one white lady. There's a really iconic photograph with just this one white lady sitting in her seat looking out. And the bus is otherwise completely empty. And there's also reports of African-Americans threatening other African-Americans if they get on the bus, Right? So they're absolutely walking, but it's not reasonable to think that if they had to walk everywhere to their jobs and anywhere else they wanted to go, that this would have been as successful as it would have been, right? That would have just been a burden that would have been really difficult. So looking to the Baton Rouge example, they form a carpool, a very intricate park carpool that's um, organized and run by the... um, by the Montgomery Improvement Association. And many of the drivers are middle-class black women who are either housewives of elite black men um, or uh, teachers at the universities in that sense. So they're driving people around. They also have all the black taxis start to do free rides or reduced fare rides until the city makes that an illegal an illegal activity, right? So there's this really organized uh, carpool that is happening and at the center of that, they need funding. They, they need to put gas in these cars. And there's um, recently, actually, this woman, Georgia Gilmore, has been recognized. She was a, a cook, an activist in Montgomery, and she formed the Nowhere Club. And it was like the name was kind of a, a joke. So when people would say, where? Because she sold all these sandwiches. She got all these women together, and they sold these sandwiches. And those put the fuel in, in these cars. And people would say, where did you get these sandwiches? Nowhere. Nowhere. 
right? This is this, you know, hidden transcript kind of thing. Um, so she's getting credit for that, but they have all, they have this infrastructure behind the boycott, most of which is manned by women, including Rosa Parks, who is fired immediately after she takes her stand on the bus. But she's fired. So she and her husband, and her husband is fired. So she becomes one of the people who is organizing this boycott um, throughout the spring of 1956. Uh, so it's primarily women who are running these activities. None of this is visible, though, if you just have, you know, the saintly Rosa Parks, and then suddenly the powers that be realize, oh, this is really wrong, and they desegregated the buses, right? There's a lot of work that went in. There's a book called Daybreak of Freedom by... Stuart Burns, and it's, there's no narrative. He just compiles all of these documents about what was going on during the boycott. And you see the memos, the inner office memos about events planned, th- or planned things that they need, um, how they're going to fund uh, King going to different places to talk and things. So it's, there's a big, big um, machine behind the boycott. This is a huge one. is the idea that the boycott, the Montgomery bus boycott, desegregated the buses. How many of you think that's true? Or have thought that's true? You're like, this is a trick question, right? <laughs> like, how many of you think that's true? I won't say that it's not true. This is a debatable question. But it did not officially end segregation on public transportation. Any guesses as to what would or did Melody? Um, I just assumed that it was, since it was, it lasted for like 382 days, I think, actually. Mm-hmm. So I think if you look at it as like a monetary perspective, how much money they were losing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and if they could uh, sustain that, I think it was more so a monetary decision, possibly. Mm-hmm. I think that is a very logical and reasonable guess. It's wrong. Because it should be, right? It should be, like, of course, they're crippling the bus company. Right, and they're making it very difficult for they have to keep reducing bus routes and everything. And the fact that that is not the answer again tells you how entrenched the city officials were. Right? Yeah, Carolyn. Was it like the Civil Rights Act, like in 1964? Like finally? No. Yes, but but it was legislation. It was legislation. Um, The Browder versus Gale. Remember Browder? Browder. Browder versus Gale court case. This is another instance where this is a huge, I think, a huge injustice. You have five plaintiffs. Eventually, Janetta Reese drops out because she's harassed to no end. You have five plaintiffs who bring this court case against Mayor Gale in the city of Montgomery and the bus company. Looking at that list of plaintiffs, notice any absences? Who's, who's not there? Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks isn't anywhere there, right? And she can't be. She can no longer be a test case because during her trial on the 5th, they changed, they changed what she had been charged with. She was charged for violating the city ordinance um, um, and not giving up her seat. And the city ordinance said that, says that if there were seats available, African Americans could sit on them. The state ordinance said that African Americans had to obey whatever the bus said. So it was amended in the middle of the trial, and then her lawyer went to appeal it. Because it was under, under appeal, she couldn't be the test case. So she's not involved in this case. 
Any other absences you might notice here? There's no men. And there's an appeal for men. There's an appeal for men. And Edie Nixon says at an MI, uh, a Montgomery Improvement Association meeting, like, seriously, guys? Like, you've been riding the apron strings. He says the apron strings of these cooks and maids forever. Like, none of you? King? No one? You're not going to put your name to this? Which is interesting because the black male ministers, largely the leadership, were less vulnerable because they, their patronage were black people. Right? They didn't have a business. They weren't working at, a, working at a university funded by white people. But so it's all women. It's all women who have experienced, um, experienced arrest, on, arrest or harassment on the buses, including, ho-ho, oh, Claudette Colvin, Mary Louise Smith. You know, these people that were considered not, not eligible, not the right fit for being the face of the movement. And they weren't because none of you knew about them, Right? You don't even know about this case, right? So they weren't, the, they weren't the face of it. But this case goes forward. It starts in February. It starts February 1st in 1956. It goes forward. This is where you get all the testimony about women being raped. These, are, these t- court documents are so useful because you have testimony from all these women about what happened to them. And that brings in all these other records about their arrests, right? And you have them saying in a public court, against the mayor and the city of Montgomery. This happened to me. That's why I'm here. And they keep asking who, this is where Claudette Colvin says the leaders are just we ourselves, right? Because they just keep trying to find out who, you know, about King, about King, like they're pawns for King in the sense. The leaders are just we ourselves. So, starts in February. In June 1956, you have a ruling. The lower court rules two to one in favor of the plaintiffs on the grounds of that 14th Amendment, right? City officials appeal. They're not giving up. The city officials appealed. November 13, the Supreme Court upholds that lower court ruling. City officials appeal. And this is a part what accounts for the fact that there's 381 days, right? African-Americans are like, we are not going back on those segregated buses. December 20th, the Supreme Court... They didn't um, hear the case again. They said, we won't consider the appeal. We've decided this, right? So that effectively ends the city's you know, quest or, or attempt to stave off this desegregation of their city buses. The decree of that, um, of that ruling reaches Montgomery on December 20th, 1956. African-Americans meet in their final mass meeting of the boycott and agree Okay, we got what we wanted. We'll go on the buses uh, tomorrow, December 21st, 1956. Um, and in the morning, that morning, you know, cameras come from all over the country and they go to Martin Luther King's house, you know, and watch him and Ralph Abernathy, another prominent man- minister, walk to the nearest bus station at 5 o'clock in the morning, get on a bus, and they take all these photographs that are very iconic now. Um, at some point in the morning, someone says, that parks woman maybe we maybe we should get a photograph of her and so they do go and find her but she's an afterthought so even as she's become the face of the movement because she's not the leader of the movement she was the one that was relatively taken care of and again this is because during the entire year every time she appears in a, a public setting in relationship to the boycott 
she's with men, right? In very much the same way Mamie Till Bradley was. You know, Edie Nixon is standing right next to her. Fred Gray, her lawyer, is standing right next to her. She's surrounded by men in suit and ties, right? And so she does speak after certain events and stuff, but she's right next to these authoritative-looking African-American men throughout the entire thing. So they do become seemingly the, the strength of that, of that movement. Um, so I think that it's really an injustice that no one knows about these women. Ariella Broder was, um, she had six children. She was a seamstress. She was, uh, she was a wife and mother, a midwife. She went back to get her, her um, bachelor's degree in her 30s. Then she went and she got her master's degree. She was an activist. They didn't pick her in the first time because they didn't think that she could withstand a cross-examination. I don't know why, but that's why they didn't use her as a test case. And then she becomes the lead of this case. And nobody knows about her, right? Nobody knows about her. So and then to that end, what Melody brought up is this idea that the boycott was short. Just out of curiosity, because you've all admitted, not all of you, but most of you have admitted, like, oh, I had a skewed idea of this. How long do you think most people, if not yourself, thought the boycott was? Or how long do you think most people think the boycott now, how long do you think they think it is? You could just yell out a number. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's definitely, that's what I grew up thinking. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I think what allows for that is kind of that fairy tale idea, right? Because again, something so wrong wouldn't take that long. So with the Browder versus Gale case, though, my question to you is, did the boycott desegregate the buses? You don't have enough information to you know, make a, like, this is where I'm planting my flag. But without the boycott, what do you think? Because it is not what the Browder versus Gale is what put the nail in the coffin of Plessy versus Ferguson. That was when separate but equal went by the wayside. So this is a huge ruling, a huge ruling. You know, arguably more important or as important as Brown, right? As Brown versus Board of Education. Huge ruling. Do you think that the boycott was necessary to that ruling? Isha? Um, I think it was because I think the boycott, while it wasn't an illegal action or might have not produced, um, you know, like might have not uh, taken down separate versus equal. Mm-hmm. I think it definitely changed people's perceptions of what was happening um, with separate versus equal. And I mean, a media campaign—it's it reverberated throughout the country. Mm-hmm. So I think you change people's hearts and you change people's minds. And I mean, maybe that is playing into the myth, but you definitely had allyship grow mm-hmm. probably in the north, mm-hmm. which is probably what people down like boycotting needed mm-hmm. or yeah. yeah yeah kind of to that extent like you talked about how there were like previously cases that had been like lost mm-hmm. in courts about like buses so and like desegregating them so I think that like the boycott was necessary to again like kind of help with like media the media push um to finalize like you said like nail on the coffin mm-hmm. um just because in the past there had been like a couple failures okay yeah, yeah. anyone else did you have your hand? Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very strong argument because, right, the Supreme Court or court officials aren't operating in a vacuum, 
right? And so to understand that public opinion may be moving in a different direction, and there's also maybe the legal grounds, right? But to understand that public, public opinion may be moving in a different direction, which is demonstrated by a northern response, right? That's too simple, but by a northern response, because this is when the movement goes national, right? This is when the movement goes national. People are sending in money all, from all over the world. The movement goes international, actually. There's, there's uh, political cartoons that you can find in French newspapers talking about the boycott and everything. So the movement goes national and international in that sense. So if we think again about Dudziak, and you put that in a Cold War context too, right? That's part of the reason people outside the United States are interested anyway. And it inspires a similar boycott in South Africa, right? So people are paying attention to this in a way that movements hadn't been, they hadn't coalesced or they hadn't gotten that attention before. Why do you think this one got so much attention? Because it's not that African-Americans in a city hadn't organized around some action. It's not even that that hadn't happened in Montgomery before. Why did this become a national media event? The answer is implied in the question. Yeah. Because they had media (laughs) (laughs) Right, to some degree, right? You can't take out the fact that we have this idea of a movement coming in the post-war moment without considering what those circumstances were. It wasn't just a Cold War thing, right? That's, that's something to consider. We have new technologies. And this is the first example of a movement that's considered nonviolent direct action. It's not the first time that strategy was used, but this is when that becomes publicized. The leaders, Martin Luther King, recognized as a spokesperson, are talking about nonviolent direct action, right? And we're going to talk about nonviolence more in terms of a strategy in relationship to other strategies that come later in the sense. But it's, I need to be careful when I say this because I do not want to dismiss the idea that the people participating in the boycott were dedicated to a doctrine of nonviolence for moral, civil, principled reasons. But it's also pageantry, right? It's also pageantry. And when you have media cameras and you have journalists coming down and you see just this, you know, crowds and crowds, row after row after row of well-dressed, you know, African-Americans stoically, peacefully walking through the city, walking up to the court building, that's an image of blackness that hasn't been mainstreamed before that point in time, right? And, and activists, subsequent activists take note. Right? We're going to talk about that when we talk about Little Rock and Birmingham. Like they take note. So this nonviolent direct action, whereas certainly this is a, a, a strategy that had been used in other moments other, of their movements, becomes something that people understand as defining the movement. That comes out of Montgomery in that sense. So it has this, it has this national um, presence that also, to your point, earlier point, Morgan, it's not scary. I mean, to the virulent segregationist, it is scary, right? But it's not scary because there's no angry black people. There's no weapons, right? Nobody is demanding. They're totally demanding, right? Nobody is demanding. They're just peacefully refusing 
right? They're peacefully refusing. And they're, they're litigated against um, many times during that year for doing that. The boycott is considered illegal. They take Trump, or Trump, whoa. <laughs> it's, like, it's like they take King and they put him into, um, they, they charge him on conspiracy, on conspiracy uh, grounds. And then they bring all these other people who are considered to be, including Robinson and Parks. You, how many of you have seen the picture of Parks um, like a mugshot of Parks, Rosa Parks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's not from when she was arrested. That's from when she had to participate in this conspiracy trial. And everybody at the trial is saying, you know, King is not leading this boycott. Like, again, this is just we ourselves. You have all of these African-American people in Montgomery show up at the courthouse. They find out that King has been arrested. And they say, where's, where's my warrant? This has never happened before, where African-American people aren't afraid to go to the jail. They get in their best clothes, they drive to the jail, all sorts of more working class people line, line the courthouse steps to make sure they go in and they go out. They turn themselves in. That's a shift in the relationship of African Americans towards law enforcement, right? You don't take yourself to a jail as an African American in the Jim Crow South. Like they show up and it totally takes away some of the leverage that the city authorities have in that sense. So, but throughout the boycott, you know, they charge someone bombs King's house. They, um, like I said, put an injunction against those free taxis. So they're doing all of these things, trying to cut the legs out from underneath the boycotters, but unsuccessfully in that sense. But I think all that pageantry is what allows for the idea that we have of the Montgomery bus boycott as being short, as being a, you know, an action of martyrs and saints, you know, with Martin Luther King, you know, marching the masses to freedom and the wall comes tumbling down in that sense, right? And it starts this freedom movement. And so you can see why I kind of find that problematic because this isn't a useful history, at least in my mind. It's not a useful history. It's inspiring, right? And many people find it compelling and inspiring. And that's important. That's important. You don't want to rip down an origin story, right, or a myth without putting something else there. Right? And I think that if you have an idea about who's organizing, how the organizing, how they were successful in this, they were successful. This is one of the more successful social movements in history, right? at least in U.S. history and at least in the 20th century. They were successful. But if you don't know anything about it, and if King and Parks appear to be these figures, like, again, who on your best day can be as saintly or as courageous as King and parks as this, these things make them appear. And they certainly were courageous, right? But they were people with complex things and pasts in that sense, right? And put into these situations um, for a, a myriad of reasons, a myriad of reasons. And then you start to think, oh, that is possible. Let's look at what they did. Of course, we can't take their strategies and map them into a 21st century, right? but we can take their strategies and adjust for our historical circumstances. That's a useful history. This isn't a useful history as far as I'm concerned. And so if we put this here, if I give you this back, this timeline, I just want you to have a sense of the bus boycott timeline. Again, I'll send this to you. Don't worry about it right now. Oops. Going backwards. I also want to point out Parks' role. Right? So you have Parks at Highlander before she ever got on the bus, before she ever made her stand. Right? And this is important because people always say she, she was either a plant 
or she didn't mean to. It was just she was inspired by her tired feet. She doesn't have to be an NAACP plant. She was entirely inclined to do what she did on the bus that day. It didn't have to be pre-planned. She was entirely inclined because of her activist self to do that, right? And then you have the Supreme Court ruling that ends the bus, ends the, uh, the bus boycott, right? And I want to point out all these other women, just make sure that, but I'll end here. So you have the symbolic mythic Rosa Parks propping up this Montgomery myth, right? And then the other thing that we're going to continue through the rest of the uh, next time and through several other classes, I would argue that that's at the center of this more problematic popular narrative of the civil rights movement. Yeah, Lauren. I think like going back to the original question of like why this isn't taught in schools, and I think like one point that can't be overlooked is that not talking about the organization, not talking about the court case is just showing how when we're saying it's like inspirational, it's like when you're talking to these young black kids that are in these schools, yeah. I think the whole point of like our education system is to push forth this like specific agenda. Um, and so when you don't bring, bring about these like specifics, the young black kids that are in the class are missing the point of, oh, if we organize, oh, if we are finding like, solidarity within each, within each other mm-hmm. or amongst each other, we're able to kind of progress properly. Mm-hmm. But instead, the, the rhetoric and the agenda that's being pushed is that if you're just peaceful and you're kind of quiet about it, that'll happen. But mm-hmm. obviously through history, you've seen that that's definitely not the way it happens. So I think another reason just why it's not ever spoken about is because if they do speak about it in its truest form, it might almost ignite a different... A different um, feeling in these young children to kind of make some sort of difference and to align with each other. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that's the case in many cases. I'll also say that, I mean, I didn't have time in here to tell you anything about the Brown case. We talked about the decision, right? You don't know anything about the nine children who were involved in the Brown case. Nine, yeah, nine children. You don't know anything about them. That's not sexy, right? The decision was sexy. The boycott was sexy in that sense. The details, it's part of the reason you should really question whether or not there's a movement now. Right? Because we're not seeing sexy, we're not seeing really pageantry stuff, maybe. That doesn't mean that there's not organizing going on. Right? The Payne article, part of the reason that I gave that to you is he says, men led but women organized. Well, then you, you, you may have to consider your ideas of what leadership is and what organizing is, right? Because I think the WPC kind of troubles his thesis there, at least for me. But only if you allow yourself to consider what do they mean by leadership? Right. What do they mean by organizing? Maggie, last well, words. I was just going to quickly say, like, while I, while I was reading the Emmett Till and the bus boycott readings the past, like, two classes, like, um, I drew, like, a lot of comparison, I guess, like, just in my own observation to mothers of the movement mm-hmm. and how, like, they're, like, a huge part of Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. and, like, they don't, I don't think they get enough credit or, mm-hmm. you know, like, as, like, leaders in the movement mm-hmm. as they should. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, they definitely relate to, like, Mamie Till Bradley and like also um, in in this situation, like the women were the ones that built this whole infrastructure that allowed them to boycott. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. like just kind of drawing comparisons, I guess, to today, I really was thinking about those mothers. Yeah, and we'll, and we'll talk more about this. I will let you go. We'll talk more about this. The need for people on the ground in the mid 20th century to keep their activities secret and then the consequences of that. But I told you earlier about this book, um, all Black Lives Matter by Barbara Ransby, like that gets into all the details, right? It really tells you what's going on right now or has been going on over the last couple of years. And it's the first time reading something that I had some optimism. It was like, oh, I'm just, I'm not seeing it, right? I'm not seeing it because people have adopted different 
ideas about how to approach this. I'm not seeing it as publicly or in the media to such a degree. It doesn't mean it's not happening. And it doesn't mean it's not actually um, resulting in some victories, right? All right, I gotta let you go. <laughs> I'll see you guys next time. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. Thank you.